Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and 10 years ago in 2011, Potter Gotuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast. And we love it. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10by9.com. We've been on Zoom since the start of the pandemic and we'll be staying there until it's safe to return to the black box. But we are loving the new voices and new audiences that Zoom has brought us across the world. There are three stories on this podcast for you. They were told on Wednesday, January the 20th, our first event of 2021. We got an email from a local arts organisation called Arts Secta, asking if we'd be interested in using the theme tea for a 10 by 9. We were delighted and thought it was a brilliant idea. Here's Julianne Skillen to explain more about her project, You, Me, and tea. So as part of You, Me and Tea, we're gathering a database of interested um, parties who would like to become story seekers. Um, and Art Sector will provide training in oral history uh, techniques and they'll loan you equipment and, and uh, teach you about interviewing um, techniques as well. And then you'll be going out to interview people uh, when, when the restrictions are obviously reduced and it's safe to do so about tea and what tea means to them. And that could be you could be interviewing your granny or your neighbour or a colleague or a local tea merchant or a tea leaf reader or somebody that collects teapots, who knows. But the training will be done in person after the COVID restrictions are reduced, as I said. But we really, I just wanted to use this platform because we're going to hear nine wonderful true stories about tea tonight. And I'm sure there are more out there. Oh, there's no doubt, Julianne. No doubt at all. And if you're interested in that project, Julianne's email is julianne at artsecta.org.uk. And Artsecta is spelt A-R-T-S-E-K-T-A. I'll put it on our social media channels too. Okay, so on to the tea tales. This first story is from Mary Johnson, who lives in County Donegal. It was just her second time at 10 by 9, but this is brilliant. I wasn't in the habit of making tea for priests. In fact, I was always very anxious a priest came into the house. So I was quite apprehensive about the upcoming event where I would be responsible for making not just a tea, but a full-cooked breakfast for the priest. Let me explain the event. It was 1959. In those days, there was a custom in rural areas that twice every year in the spring and again in October, a few houses in each parish would be expected to hold mass in their homes for the benefit of the neighbours. It was called the station. If your house happened to be chosen, you had no option but to agree. The parish priest would stand up on the altar on a Sunday and announce the names of the people who were to take the station, or as I said, who were complimented with the station. And it was, as I said, wasn't really a compliment because you had to do it, but most people obeyed. And we always knew the Sunday it went would be announced. Then people would be sitting up, paying attention, looking nervously in case their name would be announced. Although it wasn't often that anybody refused, as I say. On this particular Sunday, I sat up in the gallery of the chapel with my friend. We were talking about getting a lift to the dance that night. Who was going to take us? I suddenly sat up when I heard my father's name being called out. We were to hold the station in our house. Well, we were usually given a few months to prepare. 
The house would have to be painted both inside and out. Even the outhouses, the barn, the byre, the hen house would all be painted. All the windows cleaned and painted, cupboards turned out, all the dishes, china and cutlery washed several times. Of course, there was no dishwashers in those days. It was the old Stanley range was blackened and polished until you could see your face in it. It was important for cooking. Remember, we only had electricity for a short time then. We hadn't got a toaster, an electric cooker either. So the cooking had to be done on the range or on the open fire. The kitchen was the warmest room in the house. This is where the Sacred Heart picture hung, along with John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline. Mass was usually celebrated in the best room, which would be papered and painted. New curtains would be bought and all the pictures would be taken down and cleaned. Confession, which was a big thing, would usually be held in a bedroom before Mass. It too was decorated, the beds covered with new bed covers. It needed to look nice, you see, because the people would be looking around to see any faults that might, they might gossip about to the neighbours or they might be distracted and forget to tell their sins. The other big thing that had to be planned was the priest's breakfast, which would be served after he celebrated Mass. He had been fasting from midnight the previous evening and would need a nice breakfast. This required planning by the woman of the house, which in this case was me, even though I was only in my teens. My mother had passed away when we were very young and the housekeeping was left to me as I grew up. I was nervous at the thought of cooking the breakfast until my friend Mary Kitty promised to help me. As I said, she had spent a month of her summer holidays working as a maid and that's what she was called as for the priest. So she enlightened me, telling me what he preferred to eat. In our house, breakfast was simple. My father and my brothers would have a boiled egg, soda bread before rushing out to the farm. But now Mary told me that Father Devlin liked a cooked breakfast, bacon and egg, etc. Well, I could cope with that as long as the fire in the Stanley range was kept alive with good turf. Then Mary pointed out that he liked a particular type of tea and the name of the tea was Earl Grey. I had never heard of Earl Grey. So I thought, because I thought Earl Grey was a woman, but somebody told me not to be stupid, an Earl is a man. But I thought all those Earls had gone years ago, I said. But when I discovered that it was tea, I played around with the word, rolling it around on my tongue. Earl Grey, Earl Grey, Earl Grey. So my father said, for God's sake, Mary, just just give them the same tea as the rest of us. I'm sure you wouldn't be able to buy that kind of tea in the shops around here anyway. But I hadn't forgotten. I wanted everything to be perfect for the priest. Then something else was rumoured. Some people were serving the priest grapefruit at breakfast, trying to impress. Sure, it's far from grapefruit. They were reared, my friend laughed. Grapefruit was never used in our house because we never had quality. But I suppose... You could call the priest quality. So my friend and I decided to go to Derry to see if we could find a shop that sold Earl Grey tea. After several trying several shops and being asked, people shaking their heads, 
what? The woman laughed. Do you mean to tell me that you drink that kind of tea in Donegal? She's taking a hand at us, my friend whispered. Finally, we found a big shop that sold both Earl Grey and grapefruit as well. So later at home, first thing we did was to try out the tea. It must be good if it's Earl's drink, did I say? We giggled and poured three teaspoonfuls into the pot. My father was waiting as he had heard so much about this tea. He took a mouthful and shook his head. For God's sake, give me a decent cup of tea. Sure, this is pure innocent water, scalded to death. But we got for the priest, we both argued. Well, if you think that's what he wants. Posh people drink it, I said. Posh people, my arse, he said. He put on his cap and went out to shut the cattle in for the night. On the morning of the station, we were all up at the crack of dawn. The fires needed to be lit and the cows milked. My aunt arrived to help me to get the room ready for mass. We set the table like an altar with candles and flowers. When the priest came, we showed him to the bedroom where he could hear confession. My father took courage and went in first. Others followed in turn. I was not worried about going to confession. I was far too worried about making the priest's breakfast on who we could ask to sit at the table with them. It was the custom to invite a couple of men to sit at the table with the priest during breakfast. Now, it would be my father and two local men. It was always men, you see. Women were never invited. I could say it was because the world was too busy. As soon as the mass was over and the room was cleared, the table was set for breakfast with our best china and cutlery. I had borrowed some special cutlery to use for the grapefruit, but in the end, I just put plates of grapefruit down on the table for everyone who wanted it, but only the priest ever touched it. My friend helped me to cook the bacon and eggs on the range. My aunt toasted toast by holding it in front of the fire. When the kettle was boiled, I warmed our only china teapot, which had rarely been used. It was kept especially in case we ever had company. Now we did have company. Remembering my father's comment about the tea the previous time, I thought that I'd better make it a bit stronger this time. So I put in six teaspoonfuls to the pot. I poured the tea. Happy with myself that I'd managed to acquire the Earl Grey. I stood back and observed the men at the table. I could see them all pulling faces. Even the priest pulled a face. What is this, Mary? He was frowning. My father was holding a handkerchief over his mouth. That's Earl Grey, father. Oh, I see, that's what it is. I could see that he wasn't impressed. I was told that it was your favourite tea, Father. My face was getting more and more flushed. Sorry, dear, he wiped his mouth. I think someone had got the wrong story. He laughed then, and the others looked confused. Once I was asked to have tea with the Archbishop of Armagh. And that's the tea they served. He chuckled and put his hand over his tummy. I'll never forget it, he said. I told the story often. That's where the crossed lines came in.
I was becoming more and more flustered. Luckily, my friend, having overheard the conversation, quickly made tea from our normal tea box and chatter resumed and my embarrassment was soon forgotten. People still hold the station mass in their houses. The difference today is that you can choose to take the station mass. It's not imposed on them. And it mostly takes place in the evening. The breakfast and the tea has been replaced by the offer of sandwiches and a glass of wine or two, or maybe a glass of whiskey. Over the subsequent years, Mary and I had many a good laugh about the story of the Earl Grey tea. Mary, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. You, you tell it so stunningly in terms of all, all the pressure. Um, so nervous. Beautiful. Oh, well, you, you're a magnificent writer and storyteller. Thank you so much. It's just, it's just a true story. And, uh, oh, yeah. The pressure on the families to paint the rooms and the, the barns and everything and the, all that. Yeah. It's huge pressure, isn't it? And it was, it was it's true that people would be sitting in the chapel at Mass and knowing the Sunday that would be announced and they were all looking around and hoping it wouldn't be them because it was a lot of work. Yeah, enormous. Well, a lot of work for the women in the house. For the women, exactly. Yeah. The men would be outside painting the house, I suppose. And, oh, but, uh, yes, yeah. On a farm, it couldn't always be clean outside either. <laughs> no, my God. And um, what parish was that in, Mary? Malin. Oh, in Malin. Malin, yeah. shown, yeah. Yeah, gorgeous. What a stunning story. We had station masses in the village that I'm from in Cargilline as well. Um, All right. And yeah. I remember our parish priest shouting at people to say, don't be buying new things. But inevitably, people would, you know, because there was still the pressure that if the priest was coming into the house. And, yeah. you know, I remember as a child, when people had thatched houses, yeah, they would have to renew the thatch and whitewash that side as well. Cheap. Yeah, yeah. 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 Such pressure. Well, that's um, fantastic. Thank um, you. Fantastic indeed, Mary. Thanks so much for that amazing story about an Ireland that has pretty much disappeared, thankfully. Now. Normally at this point, I would say you can see Mary telling her story on our YouTube channel, but there was a problem with her camera, sadly. However, you can see her tell her Christmas story on YouTube, along with almost all our stories from our Zoom era. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Now, next up, and it's the 10 by 9 co-founder, Padraig Tuma. There is one minor F-bomb, but you know what? You'd barely notice it. Um, in 2002, I moved back from Australia to Ireland. It was a shock to me that I'd be back in Ireland. When I'd left five years earlier, I always imagined I'd never live in Ireland again. I did love coming home for visits, but living abroad, first in Switzerland and then in Australia, was a joy. I moved home mostly so I could study, but there was another reason. I was really keen to kiss a man. Not just one particular man, just a man. I was 27, I was only out to a few friends, but not many. And I was keen to imagine the free world outside of religion where I could go on dates. Um, I'd worked with a religious group in my time overseas. And had I ever kissed anyone or been discovered to have been um, in a relationship with anybody or in a fling, I would have been fired. So I gave notice and I packed my stuff in bags and I sent some stuff home to Ireland from Australia and uh, made the move, not to Cork, but to Dublin. I'd already arranged a place to live in Dublin. Um, three people who I'd known for a long time before, um, some well, some only peripherally, 
um, they were looking for a housemate. And they rented a big old house near Dunleary and the rent was affordable. So the trip um, to move was easy. I needed to live in Ireland for a year before I could qualify for a student grant. So I got some jobs locally and settled into living with fantastic housemates. We had lots of shared meals and evenings around the fire or the television and a household of people who were always patient when I had various strange religious friends from overseas coming to visit me. One particularly strange religious friend asked if he could come for three days. Three days was about all I could imagine coping with him. And I'm an idiot. So I said, yeah, sure. When he arrived, he got off the train, he hugged me and he goes, I got my times mixed up. I'm staying for 10 days. I hope that's okay. This was the 19th of December. He was staying for Christmas. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. I had a huge freezing bedroom. It's the biggest bedroom I've ever had in my life. And I gave my not very welcome guest the bed and I slept on the sofa that was in the room. And I think that might've been what drove me over the edge. Since I'd come home, I'd been cautiously having a conversation with a guy that I'd met on a gay support group online run by the excellent, but now defunct organization, Goira. This guy, Jimmy, and I had chatted. It was all very tame. Anyway, with my guest staying, I messaged Jimmy and said, could we meet for a drink? I told my not very welcome friend who was visiting for 10 days, not three, that I was working late and I went out for this drink that might or might not, might not have been my first date. I didn't tell anyone about the date. I wish I had. I'd come back to Ireland and moved away from an overly religious environment so I could be more open about myself, but somehow I couldn't find the words to talk about it to anyone. I didn't fear judgment from my housemates, not at all. They were magnificent, but the problem was me and all those secrets. And now the problem was my visiting for 10 days instead of three guests. He definitely would have given me all the judgment. He was not a fan of the gays. So anyway, I went into the city to meet Jimmy. I was nervous, but actually most of my nervous was centering on the fact that Jimmy had told me he adored Michael Jackson. And I was not a fan of Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson had just dangled a baby over a balcony a few weeks previously, and I thought the man was deranged. And in all the anxiety of going on this date, I was mostly fixating on how am I going to talk to someone whose musical tastes I not only don't share, but actually have fundamental moral disagreements about. So I think that might be what psychoanalysts call displacement or projection, or what Freud might have called being a closeted and kind of fucked up. Freud wasn't a fan of the gays either. Anyway, I met Jimmy and he was a laugh, total easygoing guy. He had a big family that he loved, a bunch of friends, a job. I can't remember what it was, but it was a job that he was good at and that didn't consume him outside of his work. I told him nervously that I didn't like Michael Jackson and he laughed and told me I was reading the wrong reports about his favorite pop star. I asked him if he liked reading poetry and he laughed at me and then said he was more of a fan of Maeve Binchy. And I'd read a few of Maeve Binchy's books when I was away and I liked them, I liked her style. So we did have some stuff to talk about. He was driving, so he just had one drink. It's all lovely. And after the drink, he said, um, do you want to um, uh, do something else? And now I look back and think that he might've had a particular imagination about what he meant, but do something else. But um, 
I thought he might have been something very pleasant. So I said, do you want to go for a walk on the North Strand in Clontarf? And he said, uh, sure, the poor man. He looked a bit bewildered. So we went for the walk on a freezing beach in December. And afterwards, when we got into the car, he leant over and he kissed me. And it was the first time I had ever kissed a man. And suddenly we had something we definitely both enjoyed. Michael Jackson, no. Poetry, no. Maeve Binchy, kinda, but not really. Kissing, yes. It was all so lovely. And I was frightened and exhilarated. Kissing a man in a car next to a beach in Dublin in a dark December night. Previously, I'd only been to this beach for prayer meetings in order to bind up the spirits of evil coming from other principalities and powers across the way from England. And I think that memory of the prayer meetings I'd had on the beach might have been the downfall. I was so fucked up and frightened. I broke off the kiss and I looked at him with absolute, complete seriousness. For him, I think it was just a Nice kiss with a fella I probably will never see again, but it was a lovely way to end the pleasant evening, kind of a deal. For me, it was the first time I have engaged with actual homosexual activity with a man. And I felt like I needed to make a statement to him, but mostly for me. I looked at him very, very seriously and said, I need to tell you that in spite of what's just happened, we will not be able to get married and spend our lives together. So of all the things that he was expecting to hear, this was not, I imagine, on his expectation list. This was 2002. Civil partnerships weren't legal. Homosexuality hadn't even been formally decriminalized in Ireland for 20 years by that stage. The idea of marriage was definitely not on his mind. I have no idea what I was saying. I babbled on about how I thought I was going to be a priest and maybe I still should be and maybe I should consider what I was going to do with my life and about how secrets weren't good for my life and how I'd moved back from Australia to tell people about myself, but I still hadn't told many people. And I think he could see how frightened I was. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to go for a cup of tea? Yes, I said. So the idea of a warm cup of tea in my hand was bam. So we drove to some late night takeaway place and we sat in there, loads of others around us eating fish and chips or burgers and him and me with big cardboard cups of milky tea in our hands. And I saw his kindness then. He'd met someone, me, who was clearly petrified and shocked and possibly deranged, barely out of the closet, who couldn't think about anything other than his own fear. And I was babbling, I knew it. I was telling him about all the monasteries that I'd stayed at trying to figure out becoming a priest. And I knew he was being very kind while I was losing my mind. No rush from him, just a chat. And after we'd finished the tea, he said, I'll drive you home. When we got to the place where I lived, he got out of the car, gave me a hug and said, take care of yourself and drove off, presumably kindly as he was, relieved to be rid of this babbling idiot. And I went to my room and went in, trying not to wake my friend who didn't like the gays and who came for three days, but ended up staying 10 days and trying to sleep on that couch in my room. I could hear my friend sleeping, breathing heavily, but I couldn't sleep. That kiss and all the desire and the secrecy and the raw fear and the cup of tea and that kind man, Jimmy. Oh, P, you are the worst gay ever. <laughs> how, how is that, um, 
How's that barrier of musical bass working out for you? <laughs> I know the irony. I know. Yeah. We should tell people that Paul and I share a Spotify account. And you know, at the end of the year, when you get the, here's been your musical taste of the year. I assume that, you know, Paul's absolute love of Taylor Swift is going to be up in the top two or three. And that my love of, you know, slightly depressing Icelandic orchestral music is going to be at around number four or five. The first 17 songs were all Paul's on our shared Spotify account. Taylor Swift and I don't know who other people. Tay-Tay rocks. I may have the musical taste of a 15-year-old girl, but you, oh my goodness. But thanks so much for that wonderful, gentle story. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We are so thankful to everyone who has donated. We really appreciate it. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Now, here's our third tea-themed story, and it comes from Sinead Gary. Sinead is originally from Cork, but now lives in England, and she told this from her home in Bradford. Whenever we put the kettle on in our house, my father's response was, I love half a cup of tea. The man must have drunk five times as many half a cups as the rest of us drank full cups. The half a cup was usually followed not much later by a hotter upper. Seamus died from lung cancer four days after my parents' 39th wedding anniversary in 2011. They'd been together from the age of 19, married at 20 and 21, and my mum was his carer in his last years of life. He was only 60 when he died. He'd been in hospital for weeks and the whole family, my brother and sister-in-law, my aunts, uncles and cousins, were all taking turns to sit with him to spend some time with him before he died. On the day of their anniversary, he was still able to talk, eat and drink a little. And when he realised what day it was, he sent us all away for a few minutes. And when we came back in, he was sat in a chair with a little side table set out in front with a small pot of tea, two cups and a biscuit. And he said proudly to my mum, happy anniversary. I got you a cup of tea. It was a precious commodity normally reserved for the patients, but he talked the nurses into getting a pot and a couple of cups brought in for the occasion. Of course, Seamus only wanted half a cup, but he topped it up with a hotter up not, not long after. It was a sweet moment in the midst of a very bleak time, and not long after that, he slipped into unconsciousness and we lost him. Seamus and I were very alike in some ways, and that often meant that we rubbed each other up the wrong way. But I also shared several of my dad's interests, wildlife, cooking and DIY in particular. He was also a keen gardener and after retiring through ill health, spent a lot of time tending to his vegetables and flowers and watching the garden birds, putting out wood shavings and cotton wool for them to build their nests with. He had a love of verse, particularly Robert Service and Rudyard Kipling, and the cremation of Sam McGee was a firm favourite, which was often recited at parties. He also enjoyed Western films, especially those starring John Wayne and country music. He was the youngest of four siblings and grew up in literally the middle of Ireland out in the country. He loved his brother and sisters and had a particularly strong bond with his elder sister, Maura, who some of 10 by 9 have heard of before as the bloody nun of camping fame. My mum also recalls that when they were going out together, he would call his sister Dinah from the payphone on a Saturday night and the two of them would fire off at each other all the funny stories and jokes that they'd heard in the week. He was a firm favourite with his nieces and nephews, and my parents would often have them for visits during the school holidays, when he would sit on the couch and have his toenails painted or be taught his one, two, threes in the kitchen. 
He never did get the hang of the Irish dancing, but his toes still twinkled from all the nail varnish. He was a messer. We have very few photos of him as a child where he's not pulling a face of some kind. But if you ask anybody else what my father was known for, I imagine most people would say his sense of humour and his sense of mischief, which was a mile wide. As kids, we received many a small electric shock from his various requests to just hold this wire here for a minute and we jumped out on more times than we can count. Once in my 20s, I came home to find my parents in creases of laughter on the couch to discover that they'd made me up an apple pie bed. The practical jokes I would have found it hardest to forgive were played on the people he shared digs with in his youth. Postmen, having to rise early and dress in the dark, often found they had accidentally risen in the middle of the night after he'd set their alarm clocks for 2am and on top of that put them inside a tin bucket to amplify the noise. I'd have killed him. I need my sleep. But I think the prank he put the most work into has got to be the Middleton Rare. My parents and their friends would often get together for a meal and a drink. Seamus liked a whiskey, sure don't we all. And one of the men in his group of friends had been given a bottle of Middleton Rare. Whenever they would go around to Gabriel and Angela's, Gabriel would bring out the precious Middleton Rare, but only for show. Nobody ever got a drop. The seal wasn't even broken on the bottle. One evening after a nice meal, settling down for after dinner drinks, Gabriel brought forth the Middleton Rare from its box, only to discover that the seal on the bottle was broken and the whiskey was nearly gone. There was shock and horror, swearing and outrage. Who would have dared to open this bottle of whiskey and drink it out from under his nose? Seamus Gary is who. After allowing Gabriel to have several close encounters with a medical emergency due to apoplexy, the actual bottle was produced and my dad, choking with laughter, revealed the full story and Gabriel climbed down from DEFCON 2. It turned out that the almost empty bottle contained not Gabriel's precious Middleton Rare, but a very weak tea. Seamus had gone to the trouble of sourcing an empty bottle from someone he hardly knew. In the week leading up to the dinner, he spent ages experimenting with tea bags, like some medieval alchemist in the kitchen, diluting the tea to match the exact colour of the whiskey. He plotted with Gabriel's wife, Angela, that when the coast was clear the day of the dinner, Seamus would run over to the house to do the old switcheroo. The afternoon of their visit, Angela gave the nod. He nipped across to swap the bottles and the scene was set for their practical joke. The thing I'm most proud of him for is sitting through the whole meal without saying a word, knowing what was going to come next. I'm not sure Gabriel ever entirely got over it, but even Gabriel had to give the man an A for effort. He put a lot of work into that prank. On the morning after he died, when we came home from the hospital after being there all night, my mother and I found ourselves in the kitchen, boiling the kettle. There'll be no more half a cup, she said. And I think that after the last few days in the hospital, that was the first time I really felt this loss. Sinead, thank you so much. That was nothing short of brilliant. Thank you. Um, I've said this before, there, I, I find something wonderful when someone can introduce you to someone that we'll never meet, we'll never know, and we feel we come away with uh, a glimpse into their personality and the impact they've had on people. So thank you very much. You can be... Um, very proud of yourself, and I'm sure he'd have loved to have heard that story. And what a brilliant prank! Thanks, Paul. Yeah, he put he put a lot of effort into that. <laughs> and Middleton Rare, now I wonder if Padraig has any of that. Now is that very expensive? Two hundred quid. Oh right, oh. give or take. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> and did that guy ever open it? Do you know what? I don't know if he ever did. 
Thank you so much, Sinead. That was a wonderful story to end our evening and our podcast. Now, if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. And we've quite a few events coming up in February, so we'll be looking for even more. Check out 10 by 9com forward slash events. I'm going to ask a small favor to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 Give us a rating and if you could maybe leave a short review, we'd be so grateful. It helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.